Well, if you want to take out your Bibles to John chapter 4, we're going to continue our series this morning in the Gospel of John. John chapter 4 will be in verses 16 through 26 this morning. John chapter 4, verse 16. Follow along as I read. Jesus said to her, that is the Samaritan woman, go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we have been in a series that is focused richly on your identity as the Messiah, the sent one, the one who's come from heaven. We pray that in these moments together, that reality would become more and more powerful in our lives, that you are the Christ. Lord, we pray that as we study this conversation between the Samaritan woman and Jesus, you would bring us to a place where we understand more truly and more fully what it means to be a part of your kingdom. And in particular, the nature of the worship that is in your kingdom, the nature of the worship that belongs to those who know you. We pray that this passage would help us as your people exemplify to the watching world, the life that you offer, the true life, the eternal life, the life filled with true worship, and that that would permeate all of our lives, that we would go out from here and exemplify this in our work and in our family and in our hobbies, that worship of you would be central because of this text. Um, we pray for anybody in this room who does not yet know you, that your identity as Savior and Lord, would come home to them for the first time, and that they would turn to you and believe and be saved. Praise in your name. Amen. Uh, you may be seated, children. You can be dismissed to Children's Church. And while they go, let's just catch ourselves up here. So we've been in a series that we've titled Life from Above. Life from Above. Uh, in John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. And in chapter 3, we really saw... Uh, and answers to the question, how does one enter the kingdom? How does one enter the eternal life that Jesus offers? How does one come to participate in this eternal life? And, and the answer we got from chapter 3 was really that we need life from above, that we need God to act, to give us a new heart by his spirit, to give us a new disposition towards him, a disposition marked by faith and humility We need this new life to come from above and transform us from the inside out. That's how we participate in this kingdom. That's how one comes to know this eternal life. God needs to act by his his power and by his will to change us. In chapter 4, which we started last week, we've been engaging with a dialogue. A dialogue. Jesus has been engaging with the woman from Samaria at the well, And we've really been seeing at the first part here that Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. That he isn't just the Savior of the Jews and Nicodemus and people like that. He's the Savior of the whole world. A woman. A Samaritan woman. 
as we're going to see today, a sinful Samaritan woman. Jesus is the Savior. He's the Savior of the whole world for both Nicodemus and this woman and for all of us. It doesn't matter what your background is, what your ethnic ethnicity is, what your gender is, how many times you've messed up, how deeply you've messed up. Jesus is the Savior for the whole world. That's what we looked at last week. His identity as the one sent from God to offer true life, true life to people like you and me. Today, as we continue in Jesus' conversation with this Samaritan woman, we will enter into the topic of true worship, or what it means to be true worshipers. This takes center stage here, and it's no accident, I think, that this comes directly after the part of the conversation that we just studied last week. Worship is central to the life Jesus is offering. Worship is central to the life of the kingdom. In fact, you could say that worship is really the lifeblood of the kingdom. It is the substance of what it means to live in relationship with God, the real day-to-day reality of the eternal life we get to share with him. It's this life of true worship. Therefore, we need to understand and live out what we learn in this passage here. It may seem from the conversation that what we're dealing with here is, you know, a religious dispute 2,000 years ago. But the truths that are given to us here really help us understand the life we are called to live today as a part of God's people, the nature of true worship. So we're going to ask questions like, what do we worship? Or put it another way, what do we ascribe worth to? What do we bow the knee before as the great thing in our life, the thing worthy of all of our devotion and praise? But then also, you know, from that fundamental question of, Are we living lives of idolatry or lives of true worship? We have further questions like, how do we worship? Is is true worship, as Jesus defines it, really the goal of our ministry here, of our life here as God's people? Does the true worship Jesus defined really mark our lives of worship, our life of worship together as a church here in 2022? This morning, Jesus directs our focus onto the need for and the nature of true worship. And so those are our two points this morning. Really, the need for true worship and the nature of true worship. This conversation with the Samaritan woman plays as a a vivid illustration for us of eternal realities, of what it means to engage with Jesus as, as the Messiah and enter into his kingdom. So, Let's jump in. Jesus, the Savior of the world, has just presented the gospel to the woman of Samaria by by telling her about a different kind of water. They're at a well, right? And he asks her for water. And then by the end of the by the end, by the end of last week's conversation, we have her asking for water. Jesus says in verse thirteen, "Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. The water coming out of Jacob's well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him." will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman, not truly catching what Jesus was saying here, like Nicodemus, being stuck on the physical. Nicodemus, you must be born again. How can a man be born when he's old? He sees Jesus' spiritual statement as a physical statement. Here too, the woman at the well sees Jesus' offer of living water, as a statement about physical reality. She needs to be instructed and led to understand the true nature of what Jesus is talking about. And so Jesus, like the the precise evangelist, the true counselor, engages her on a level that will describe to her her need, that will show her the drought in her soul, that will show her her need for living water. And he does it with one simple statement. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. In that simple statement, Jesus probes into the very heart of her need. And so we're going to see really in succession here two aspects of this woman's need. Um, In verses 16 through 18, we're going to see her needy life. Her lifestyle will illustrate to us the need of her soul. 
that she, in fact, doesn't know this life that Jesus is offering. But then we continue on and we see a needy mind in verses 19 through 20, that she actually needs to be instructed on the very nature of this life Jesus is talking about. So first, let's look at this needy life in verses 16 through 18. Jesus said, go get your husband and come here. And the woman answered in verse 17, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For, if you, ha- for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, there's not a whole lot of description here about how those relational dynamics all went down. Um, we do know later that when she expresses this, in, this interaction with Jesus to the other people in the city, she says, he told me everything I've ever done. And so, in some ways, she's taking ownership of this life of five husbands uh, and living with a man. She's not simply a victim here, though there's no way to imagine that many marriages broken without deep struggle for her as well, right? There's got to be pain all over this. There's no way for this to happen without pain written all over it. This is a woman who uh, has made a lot of bad decisions and a woman who has received probably a lot of hurt and pain. She has a needy life. And the, and the point here is, is not to emphasize all the particulars about her particular life, but to say that Jesus is here engaging a person whose life pattern is in many ways opposite of the person he engaged in chapter 3. He engaged Nicodemus, a religious leader, a social leader, a man of polish and dignity and respect. And he told him that you must be born again. You need a new life. You need to have a new start, a whole new disposition towards God. And here in chapter 4, we're engaging with this woman of Samaria, who is a deep sinner, whose life is marked by the brokenness of sin. And Jesus' message, his offer, is to both. It's to all sorts of people. Those who have their religious ducks in order and have their morality straight, and those who are far from it. Those who have lives that are marked by brokenness. So, I don't know where you are personally here today, um, but certainly you fit within those categories. Many of you, growing up in the church, have, by God's grace, been spared from lives that are just riddled with the brokenness of sin. Um, You have been given habits and patterns of mind and ways of thinking that have led your life maybe to look a little bit more polished like the Pharisee, and yet you still need Jesus. And many of you, for whatever reason, whether you come from a church background or not, have found yourself in a situation where your life is broken. Um, Maybe your marriage is broken, or your relationship with your kids is broken, or your You have a string of occupations that just keep failing, maybe because of your own error, maybe just because of the brokenness of our world. But your life is marked transparently by brokenness. And the message here in Jesus engaging this woman is that you too need what Jesus offers. And you too can have it. You're not disqualified by your life from receiving the gospel. You're not disqualified by your life from becoming true worshiper, a true worshiper. So we see in verses 16 through 18 a needy life expressed for us, and it illustrates for us our neediness, our true neediness. We need to be transformed by Christ into people who truly worship. Now you think about how the Bible talks about the relationship between worship and our patterns of life. Jesus says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. James says that we quarrel and fight and murder because we have desires at war within us. We want and we cannot have. In other words, Scripture says that our patterns of life come from our heart condition. And so even though Jesus doesn't explicitly make the connection here in direct language, It makes perfect sense that this highlight of this woman's life here as a life riddled with brokenness, riddled with sin, 
and the effects of sin would come right before a discussion about the true nature of worship, the true nature of the heart that gets put within us as God's people, the eternal life that wells up within us. The eternal life that Jesus offers is, in its essence, a certain sort of worship. It's a return to the worship we were created to have, the the life of worship we were created to live. This woman's life is marked by false worship. She has been chasing false desires, false motives, false uh, promises. She's like a woman in the desert chasing after the mirage of the life that Jesus offers. And yet it's not hers because her life is marked by a false worship that's leading to brokenness. Jesus, as the the good counselor here, you know, illustrates for us what is said in John 3.17. He did not come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. You see how he as a counselor here doesn't just immediately expose her sin and then say, aha, I got you, repent, be better. That's not where he goes. He enters into the heart of the matter, the relationship that she needs with God, with the Father through him. He as the good counselor engages her towards the end of saving her, not towards the end of condemning her. Um, It's important for us to notice that. Jesus, as the good counselor, moves her to life. She doesn't just, he doesn't just point out her sin and leave her to death. So we have this nature, uh, or, or this need for worship to, expressed in her life. But then her conversation, and for whatever reason she jumps into this, it, the best explanation I, I came across for why she jumps is she perceives in his understanding of her life that he is unique, that he is a teacher sent from God, a prophet. And in that, she has some uh, natural religious discussion to have with a Jew who is a prophet, right? She has some questions. Um, Those who are uh, serving in in more leadership roles in the church understand this dynamic. You engage people, and it's hard to have normal conversation. You automatically get strange questions thrown back at you. Uh, You have their pet theological issues put in front of you. It's just how things work, and I think that that's really what we're seeing here. She sees that he is one who speaks with authority on religious matters, and she engages him on it. But in her engagement on it, she exposes to us, and I think that's how this is functioning here, she's exposing to us that she doesn't just have a lifestyle problem. She doesn't just have a need in her life to be changed. She has a religious problem. She doesn't know God as she is supposed to know him, as she needs to know him. And so Jesus engages her on that level. Look at, look at the way she expresses this conversation in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Speaking of the mountain that this, the Samaritans set their temple on. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she brings up this debate, this debate between the Samaritans and the Jews as to where the proper place to worship is. Which temple under the, under the old covenant system, is the right place to live. And I think it's important to even notice uh, Jesus' response here in its structure. Jesus engages this question head-on. He doesn't engage her lifestyle necessarily head-on. He engages this discussion head-on because this discussion unfolds in the conversation the real substance of what he wants to talk to her about. She's caught up on this old covenant debate between the Samaritans and the Jews as to where the physical location of worship should take place. And Jesus is saying, I've got something more to offer you. I've got something more to give you. You are caught up on this debate, and and I've got something to say about that particular debate under the old covenant, but yet I have something much greater to give you. And so he enters in here in verses 21 through 26 to give us a really profound description of the nature of the new covenant life that he offers. This, this eternal life, this relationship that he offers with God, and it's marked here by true worship. By true worship. And so let's move to think about this, the nature of true worship in 4, 21 through 26. 
the nature of true worship. What is this lifeblood, this, this real heartbeat of the kingdom that Jesus wants to give to this woman, transform this woman into? And it, it really comes to us, it comes to us in a dialogue. But as I was wrestling with how to walk through that dialogue helpfully, I came to the thought of, there's really three aspects to this true worship that Jesus is describing. And I think in, in looking at these three aspects, we're, we're helped in exposing the logic of what he's saying. And so let me just say up front here, okay, I think the way to think about true worship in this passage is with Jesus' statement, and he says it, right? Those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. What is the nature of the true worship, the true worshiping life that Jesus wants to give us? It's this life of worship in spirit and truth. But as I read the commentaries and talked to people and thought through it myself, people like run in circles in trying to define what in spirit and truth means. And so I was, I was looking at this paragraph thinking, what is here that exposes what this really means? And I saw, I think, three things that answer it in this text. So most of you have heard that expression. We need to be worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. Let's dig a little bit deeper. What does that mean and how does that expose to us the nature of true worship? First, true worship fulfills God's plan. Look at verse, the end of verse 23. Look at the end of verse 23. So Jesus says, uh, The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That's the nature of the true worship I have to offer you. For, and this is the logic here from, for this point, for... The Father is seeking such people to worship him. Why is spirit and truth worship the worship that will mark the kingdom, that marks out the people of God, that is the true life Jesus offers? Because the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So true worship fulfills God's plan. True worship fulfills God's plan. Let's think about that a little bit. What has been God's plan? How do we understand the nature of how God has been seeking throughout redemptive history, throughout the grand story of Scripture, for true worshipers? Jesus is saying a profound statement here. He's pointing to really the central theme of Scripture. God is seeking true worshipers. How do we understand that? Well, at least for here, we'll get to some more aspects of this in a bit, but at least for here, let's mark out two things. First, God is seeking genuine worshipers. God is seeking genuine worshipers. And secondly, God is seeking global worshipers. Global worshipers. Let's look at that first one. What is the Father seeking? He's seeking genuine worshipers. Uh, turn with me in Isaiah to Isaiah chapter 1. We're kind of jumping in here to this storyline in the middle, but I think it helps illustrate for us the real problem at play here that Jesus is solving. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. God is, the Father is seeking genuine worshipers. Verse 10, Isaiah chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of God, you people of Gomorrah. He's using that as an illustration of their sinfulness right now, Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. For those of you who understand the relationship God established with Israel, you want to say, well, you demanded those things, and you told them to come to your courts and offer incense and sacrifices. So what is God saying here? Well, Israel, in this moment in time when Isaiah is written to the people, is practicing a form of religion without godliness. 
They're living lives of marked by sin. And God is saying, you keep practicing these expressions of worship without the genuine thing. You aren't coming before me as contrite, humble worshipers who love me and want to obey me and honor me. You're coming before me as religious observers who don't love me and don't worship me and don't honor me. And so he's saying, get that stuff out of my face. Israel is an expression here of the history of humanity. That God is the one to be worshipped and he created a, a humanity to be in relationship with him, loving him and serving him joyfully and enjoying the blessings of being in relationship with him. And man has turned from God as the source of all blessings and the, 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 the one who deserves the true worship and has worshipped created things. Idols made by hands and pleasures taken out of their proper place themselves as rulers instead of God. And God is saying, I want true worship. I am about true worship. I'm about people who have a heart disposition towards me that wants to honor me as good, as the source of all blessing, as the one they long to be in relationship with, as the one they give thanks to. I want true worship. That's the problem God is solving in the history of redemption. How do we know this uh, more profoundly? Look at the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. You can turn there if you want. I'll just read it when I get there. Jeremiah 31, this promise of the new covenant. Listen to the language. In verse 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. How is God going to solve this problem? I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, genuine, inside, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. God's mission in the new covenant, in this work of redemption in Christ, is to bring about genuine worship. To take human beings who are worshiping self and worshiping created things and make out of them people who actually come to him as God in loving, obedient, honored, honoring hearts and praise him who fulfill what we were created to be. God is seeking genuine worship. Secondly, God, God is seeking, the Father is seeking global worship. Psalm 67 1 through 3. These are just great texts, so we're just going to continue to turn to them. Psalm 67, 1 through 3. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that, why? That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all of the peoples praise you. What was the purpose of Israel? What was the purpose of God's work in their life? That the nations would praise God. That they would see his provision for them and turn to him and praise him. That all of the nations would praise God. That there would be this global worship taking place. And that is the purpose of the Messiah, of Jesus coming. One more verse in this verse gymnastics that we're doing. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 42, 5 through 8. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I, so he's, blessing to God as the creator, the one who sustains and gives life, and here in verse 6, he's talking to his Messiah. And in the context, uh, he's talking to the chosen one, the servant, the one who will come and perform the work of redemption that he has planned. Verse 6, I am the Lord. I have called you, my servant, in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. And what's the purpose of this servant, this Messiah? I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. 
those graphic pictures of what it means to be caught up in false worship. What is false worship? It's a life in darkness, apart from the light of God, showing his goodness. What is the work of the Messiah? Stripping back that blindness to see the glory of God again, to see his goodness, his faithfulness, his character, his promises, and to worship him for it. Jesus' mission as the Messiah in the new covenant is for genuine and global worship to be given to the Father. So what is this spirit and truth worship that marks true worshipers? It's worship that is fulfilling this plan of God, which means it's a worship that's genuine. It's from the heart. It's worship that is, it's not just in word and deed, but in, in heart attitude. And it's worship that is global. God is seeking worshipers from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and he will get them. They will come from the four corners of the earth to praise him. We'll get back to some of these nuances here, but for now, notice the centralness of this. What does it mean to be a true worshiper? It means at least that it's genuine and that it's belonging to people from all over the place. All right, let's move into our second, uh, our second window into what in spirit and truth worship means in this passage, and that comes in verse 24. Verse 24 says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You see the logic there? God's nature demands a certain sort of worship. So point two here, true worship responds to God's nature, or it's in accord with God's nature. True worship relates to God according to how, who he actually is, his nature. And what's the nature, the aspect of his nature that's highlighted here? It's God is spirit. God is spirit. What does that mean? God is spirit. What is he highlighting here? Well, one, uh, God is spirit unlike those idols of the nation that are crafted out of wood and clay and stone by the hands of man. God is above that. He transcends that. He's of a different nature than that. He is spirit. But I think the most helpful description of it comes uh, in chapter 1. Chapter 1. What is the implications that God is spirit and how does that affect our worship? Chapter James, uh, John 1, 18. John 1, 18. This is important to look at this, so turn there. Like we said in the beginning of the series, the, the entirety of the book of John, the gospel of John, is summed up in chapter 1 in this prologue, and, and this is no different. John 1, 18. What do we understand this God is spirit language to mean? No one has ever seen God. How do you worship something that you've never seen? How do you know anything about something that you've never seen? That's why the idol worshipers in the world craft images, right? Because you need something that you can see, something tangible, in order to actually have any sort of understanding of what you're dealing with. How do you worship something you cannot see? God has never been seen, nor can he be seen. So what does that mean for our worship? The rest of the verse. The only God who is at the Father's side, so there's a God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known, which in its context we obviously know is referring to the Christ, to this God the Son taking on flesh and exposing to us who God is. No one has ever seen God. Jesus has made him known. So, what does it mean to worship God in spirit and truth? It means worshiping him according to his nature, which means here, according to all this, that you've got to worship him through his means of self-revelation. You've got to take seriously the fact that God has revealed himself in particular ways, most profoundly in his Son. And so true worship, worship in spirit and truth, is worship that takes seriously God's unknowableness apart from his self-revelation. 
we have to take seriously the role of Jesus in our worship, which leads us to point number three. And this one will probably take us the most amount of time here. We get to think now about Christ. How does Jesus fit in this equation? He is the self-revelation of God. Therefore, point number three, true worship is through Christ alone. True worship is through Christ alone. Now, there's three aspects in this passage that will probably fill in some of the details that you've noticed I've jumped over, okay? We're going to go back to three things here that help express to us what it means to worship in light of Christ. How does Christ change the game? How does he make worship a whole new thing in his ministry in the new covenant? There's three tidbits here. The hour, the temple, and the teacher. Okay, let's work on those three. The hour. You guys saw, I'm sure, in his response to the woman's statement that he has a couple repetitions of the phrase, the hour. Let's go back and look at that. She says in verse 20, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where, we ought to, where people ought to worship. So there's this old covenant debate of which temple do we go to? And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, take me seriously. Hear what I have to say. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. So there's this repetition of the hour. The hour. This hour clearly is changing everything. What does he mean by this? In John, the hour is a a literary way, a way that Jesus is using to speak of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. This great messianic moment. This inauguration, this beginning of this new covenant life is the hour long awaited. And it's coming to a head in Jesus. That's why he can say it's not just coming at his death and resurrection and ascension and giving of the Spirit, but it's already here. He is the hour. When Jesus shows up on planet Earth, the hour begins because that new covenant moment, that crafting of a new relationship with God through the Messiah has begun. First through his teaching and his example, his message of the gospel, but then through his acts to save and redeem and give new life on the cross and in the tomb and in the giving of his spirit. This hour is centered on Jesus. Jesus changes everything about true worship, about the nature of true worship. And this, this hour is related directly to the second point here, the temple. Now this is a little bit more subtle, okay? It's a little more subtle, but you've got to catch what is being said here. You have to catch what is being said here. Turn back to chapter 2. Temple And the relationship between Jesus and the temple has been one of the central things going on in this book so far. Uh, We didn't start in chapter 2 as clearly. We kind of covered it in Gary's sermon. But you have to see what is happening here in chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Jesus says and does something profound that changes, or at least makes you think he's about to change something. He's about to do something. First, he cleanses the temple expressing his devotion, his passion for the purity of worship, for the expression of worship from God's people to his Father. He cleanses the temple of all the money changers and those who are abusing the situation, and he makes it in, into what it was created to be again. My, house is not a, my Father's house is not a house of trade. I have a zeal for this house. It's a house of worship. But then he goes one step, step further. Jesus has a passion for the temple. So the Jews said to him, verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it was taken, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Another instance of people taking Jesus' spiritual language and thinking it's physical. It's taken 46 years to build this physical temple in front of you and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, 
His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The temple of his body. Jesus is doing something dramatic in his ministry with the understanding of the temple. In the Old Covenant, and he expresses this to the woman, right? In the Old Covenant, Jerusalem is where true worship of God was to take place. It's where the concrete expression of worship was to take place in a location. It's where God dwelt in the Holy of Holies amidst his people and provided a way for them to draw near to him through the forgiveness of sins, through sacrifice. It's the place where God's people could feel his presence, his with-themness, that he, he was their God and they were his people. It's, the temple was the location where God met with man and had relationship. And Jesus is saying, my body is changing things. My body is changing things. And he's saying, I am the temple. Which connects to the hour, doesn't it? The hour of this new covenant ministry is bringing in a new temple arrangement in which Jesus is now the place where human beings come into relationship with God. Jesus is now, in his new covenant, the savior for the whole world. The place where true worship and true worshipers happen. The place where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation can have their hearts changed and be brought into this relationship with God where true worship takes place. You don't have to, you know, go on this pilgrimage to Mecca to have true worship take place, or Jerusalem in the Jews' case. You have Jesus. And because of the hour and the sending of the Spirit, you have him with you all the time. You have been brought into fellowship with God through the work of Jesus and through his ongoing presence in your life by the Spirit. Jesus radically changes the understanding of the temple through this hour that he talks about. True worship is through Christ alone. There's no one else who has the hour, who has this ministry inaugurating this new covenant, and therefore there's no one else who can stand in between God and man as the Redeemer, the one who brings God and man back into relationship and allows real, genuine, heartfelt worship to take place all over the world. So true worship is through Christ alone in his hour, through the nature of him as the temple. And then third here, we have this confession uh, from the Samaritan woman in verse 26 that is powerful. Whether she really is understanding what he's picking up yet or not is, it seems to be in question. But her statement is profound in verse 26 here. Turn the page. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What is this confession this woman makes? She's a Samaritan, right? Deuteronomy 18, 15. They, the Samaritans accepted the Pentateuch, and so Deuteronomy was very prevalent in their thinking. And she quotes from Deuteronomy 18.15 to describe her expectation of this messianic figure. She's starting, I think, to clue in. This guy is talking about stuff that I understand a little bit of. Who is he? Jeremiah, oh, sorry, not Jeremiah, Deuteronomy 18.15, I'm still trying to get there. The Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. This is Moses speaking. So he's going to raise up a prophet like Moses from among you, from your brothers, from the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when they said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die, they need a mediator. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them words that he shall speak in my name. I myself will require it of him. God is going to raise up a prophet like Moses who will have the very words of God and will speak on God's behalf. And this Samaritan woman is cluing in on this expectation. She knows these words, and she's, she's thinking, this guy, is, this guy is talking with authority 
as if he's talking from God. I know that this Messiah will come and teach us all things. I am he, Jesus says. Jesus evangelizes this Samaritan woman down to the very identity of who he is. And in so doing, he presents himself in this third way as the teacher. Jesus has the hour uh, focused on his life, death, and resurrection and ascension. He is this new temple, and he's this teacher who's sent from God to deliver this gospel, this good news of salvation to the whole world, to the Jew first, to also to the Greek, to the, to the Pharisee, and also to the Samaritan woman, to the religious and the unreligious of us, to the moralistic and the wicked among us equally. Jesus is the teacher sent from God with a message of life that he will purchase on our behalf. So, when you look at these aspects of true worship, these, I think, descriptions of spirit and truth worship, and we see that true worship fulfills God's plan. It's according to the expectation that's been set down from the beginning of genuine and global worship. True worship responds to God's nature, which means that we worship him on the spiritual level, yes, but we worship him according to how he has revealed himself to us, who are flesh, which is Jesus. Jesus is the pathway to true worship. He's the only means by which we can know the God we need to worship. And third, true worship is through Christ alone, drawing that out further, through his hour, through the temple, through his teaching. Jesus is the place where true worship begins. And he dictates the aspects of this. So let's, let's draw out some implications here in the remaining moments. Okay, I want to ask a few questions. And I want you to think with me uh, about the implications here for our life. Let's ask firstly, how does this true worship shape our Sunday morning? How does this true worship shape what we are doing here? True worship is genuine. True worship is global. True worship is Christ-centered. How does that shape us? Well, it means firstly that what we do here is not about form, first and foremost. It's about substance. It's about who, what name we are coming to God through, what we're believing about the revelation of the Father in Jesus Christ. And it's about our genuine belief in that, our genuine response to that. It's about genuineness. So you might have, and we all do, have particular desires about music, about service structure, about way sermons take place, about liturgical structures or non-liturgical structures. You have all of your preferences about form, but true worship, the worshipers that God is pursuing, worship in spirit and truth, out of a genuine heart, from all the people of the world, all the cultures of the world. We worship in spirit and truth on Sunday mornings. Second, let's ask the question, how does true worship shape the rest of our week? And I think this is really a powerful application from this passage. We who grow up in the church have a tendency to think of worship in a very myopic, sort of focused way. Worship is what we do when we come together in our worship service. And I know you who have been in the church have probably heard people critique this, but this is a great place to go to, to have your heart refreshed in this. What is it that we do when we leave these doors today? We worship. Here we worship in song and the receiving of the word and prayer. We go out and we worship in our service, in our acts of love, in the message we proclaim, in the God that we submit ourselves to, in the joy that we have in him. We go out throughout the rest of our week with genuine hearts, responding to the self-revelation of God in Jesus Christ, engaging with all of these people from all over the world, the refugees, the people from this or that background and this or that socioeconomic station. We engage with everybody with this message of life because we are about true worship. And true worship is in spirit and truth. It's not limited to a place. It's not about formal religious observance, first and foremost. It's about this engagement through Christ with the Father. We have a task on Sunday mornings, and we have a life to live throughout the rest of the week. But I think the most central implication from all this to close with is we 
no matter where you're from, can all be true worshipers. That's what we get from this text. That Jesus, in this life-giving message, this eternal life, this water welling up in us, is producing true worshipers. And, and I think sometimes we underestimate how far away we, our lives are from the situation that was in Jerusalem. And we, we forget how powerful this new covenant reality is for us. We were far from the people of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise. We were apart from God in this world. And through Jesus being a, a global Savior, we have been brought in. That should make us joyful. Like we've, been, we've been given this opportunity that we should never have deserved or never have earned or never been called into. But God had a mission to bring genuine worship from all of the peoples of the earth. And we get to be a part of that. So you who come from a church background, you who come from a very unchurched background, you who come from Afghanistan or Indonesia or Korea or South America or Wausau, Wisconsin, can become true worshipers. It's the greatest privilege of our life. It's the thing we were created to be. And in Jesus, we have that opportunity. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this great conversation with the Samaritan woman. Um, for using her life as an illustration for us of the life um, that we live as those caught up in the brokenness of sin in this fallen world. Uh, I ask that you would convict hearts here who are left in complacency or left in self-righteousness, that you would show them their need for your life that you give, and that they would turn to you and accept the gospel message as their only hope and, and trust in you and be marked by the humility that you give and have this true worship welling up within them. We pray that that would mark all of us as your people and that even Emmanuel Baptist Church would be marked by this genuine, global uh, engagement with you through Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.